everyone, and welcome back to another episode of What the Forensics. My name is Rebecca, and I am joined here today by the wonderful Journey and Nicole. Uh, this week, Nicole is going to be telling us about the case of the Ant Hell Kids, uh, but more specifically about Roche Therio, uh, as he was the cult leader. And then Journey is going to follow this up by educating us on cult typologies, because we have done this three-part cult series, uh, but we haven't exactly explained like different types of cults and really what they are. So uh, yeah, I'm really excited to learn about like the specifics of them. Um so I would also like to note just before we get started today that there is a listener's discretion advised because we do have detailed descriptions of abuse uh, of is both sorry that is both of sexual and physical nature on adults and children and there's also descriptions of mutilation and brief descriptions of desecration so uh, without further ado, uh, let's get right into the case study. Nicole, would you care to tell us about the history and story of the Ant Hill Kids? Yeah, for sure. Um, I do want to preface this by saying that um, there are kind of a f- only a few reliable sources detailing what happened in this cult and kind of like the history and background of um, Roche Therio, who was the main guy. Um, so kind of just keep that in mind while we're going on about the case study. Um, there were some, like there's a lot of media sources. So a lot of Quebec um, news sources covered him. Um, I don't know if those are the most reliable because again, they just are given what they have at the time. Um, so keep that in mind. But without further ado, I will jump into it. So Roche Therio was born in Rivière du Moulin, Quebec in 1947. His father growing up was part of a fundamentalist into fundamentalist integrist Roman Catholic social credit movement um, where it's believed that the Catholic faith the Catholic faith sorry should be what public law and policy should revolve around essentially so like that was the basis of everything was the Catholic faith faith. Um, neighbors would recall that his father was a part of a group known as the White Berets, who opposed liberal trends within the Catholic Church as well. And Therio and his siblings um, would be brought along to their father's missionary excursions, traveling kind of town to town, selling the Pilgrim's newspaper where they could. Therio would later say that his father physically abused him, ranging from beatings to scarring his internal organs. Um, this I'm not entirely sure what that would entail. That was like the only snippet that I read was, oh, scarring his inter- internal organs. Um, I assume it's nothing great, but again, I'm not sure what uh, specificities there were to that. <laughs> Another neighbor um, during all of these interviews that happened kind of once the cult was disbanded, um, another neighbor recalled that his him, his three brothers and his dad would play a game called bone with one another. And so this entailed um, sitting in their kitchen or kind of wherever at the house, kicking each other's shins um, while wearing heavy boots and going until one of them gave up or gave in. So, I don't know about the activities you guys had with your fathers growing up, but that was not one of mine. Nope, mine either. 
Yeah, no. Yeah, that, that doesn't <laughs> not, sound like the typical experience. Yeah. Um, so according to some sources, too, he apparently couldn't walk until he was three years old. And by age six, he could only speak a few words. And at this time, at six years old, him and his family had moved to Thetford Mines, which was or is a small Quebec town described as a, quote, asbestos mining town, 230 kilometers northeast of Montreal, end quote. So I, I kind of just envision like a really dingy, dirty gross town um which is where they moved to after the seventh grade therio dropped out of school but apparently through those seven years he was an excellent student um he i guess was very smart got good grades but he just school wasn't for him as he got older, Thério worked various jobs and met Francine Grenier, um, and this was while he was working in the Thetford Mines during his teenage years. The two of them would later marry in 1967, and they moved to Montreal together. The two of them then fathered two children, and their two children were born in 1969 and 1971. It said that Therio had stomach ulcers growing up as well, which worsened, I guess, in 19 or after 1970. He eventually got surgery for it, but this caused further complications, resulting in some suffering for the rest of his life, which is thought that have thought to have really affected his psyche and his personality, which then um, ultimately affected the cult. Yeah. Um, do you think were they actually mining asbestos in that town? Because it's so toxic. I don't know. So when I heard like asbestos mining town, my brain kind of just thought of a town riddled with asbestos, but they were like actually mining for something else. Okay. I don't even know if you mine for asbestos or not, but okay. Yeah. I didn't Google it, so you know, maybe, I was like, maybe, <laughs> yeah, I was like, maybe that's where like all of his issues and why he's a little fucked up. Kinda. Yeah. Yeah. I just did a really brief, uh, uh, Google search and it looks like it's just more so associated with like mining for other elements that asbestos just happens to be in the mines. And so they just call it asbestos mining because there's so much in the mines. Uh, okay. That makes sense. So regardless, not great. Yeah, so I guess after his... I only really read this on one source, so I'm not sure what his stomach problems entailed and his ulcers and whatnot. But I guess after he got the surgery for his the ulcers, um, he gained a really big interest into medicine. And we'll see later on that this really played an important role um, throughout his cult career. But his first wife um, ended their marriage in 1974, but it wasn't until 1977 that they would officially become divorced. And while working at the Quebec Carnival, Thério met Giselle Lafrance in 1975. And it said that an affair soon started after. I don't really know if this like technically an affair because... The wife, the, his first wife left him in 73, but I guess because legally they weren't divorced on paper until 1977, it would be considered an affair on paper. Um, but anyways, in 1975, the two of them started seeing each other. 
Um, between 1976 and 1977, work was really difficult for Thério to find, um, which resulted in him squatting in abandoned buildings in these um, in Thetford mines for a little bit. And then in 1977, he was also introduced to the Seventh-day Adventist Church, which is an Adventist Protestant Christian denomination. And so I guess its main distinguishing feature, I've never heard of it before, but from a quick search, its main distinguishing feature is that Saturday is their Sabbath. So it was like the seventh day, um, I forget, in Hebrew something. Um, was Saturday. So they treated Saturday as their Sabbath day rather than, because I think Sunday would be Sabbath for other um, religions. But another big thing was that they emphasized the Im- Im- imminent second coming of Jesus Christ in the Seventh-day Advent- Adventist church. Yeah. Um, so after his introduction to this church, he kind of did a full 180 with his lifestyle So he went from being a really heavy drinker to becoming completely sober, abstaining from booze and cigarettes. And he went to thoroughly study the Bible. And I guess with the Adventist church, they have a very like no alcohol, no cigarettes, no junk food, um, no unhealthy foods rule. So he really followed that. Um, And as he did more research and reading of the Bible, he and LaFrance, who he was seeing at the time, were baptized into the church. But during this time, his beliefs were moving away from those of the Adventists. So, like, he still kind of put on a face that he was following their beliefs, but he, in reality, had a different idea. Um, Still with this church, though, he took on a missionary role by selling literature door to door. Um, He seemed to be really good at this. He was used to traveling city to city, town to town with his father when he was a kid. And then he was actually invited by the Adventist leaders to teach anti-smoking courses within Thetford Mines and the surrounding towns. So helping people quit smoking would soon become kind of like the divine mission of the Ant Hill kids at the beginning of the cult's inception. And that was what a big part of what they were based around. But then that quickly strayed from that. Um, but these anti-smoking sessions were five days long and they included advice on healthy eating and um, like they also sold natural foods and juices alongside these sessions. So they were really pushing like that healthy lifestyle, eating healthy, no junk food, no smoking. Um, Therio was then tasked with educating four potential converts. They were all in their teens or early twenties and they were to start school that upcoming September. (laughs) So he treated them as if they were his own children in a way, soon becoming members kind of of their own group and they became sorry they began calling him pappy and his wife girlfriend la france at the time um they referred to her as mammy so and as september rolled around none of those four initial converts ended up going to school and this raised some suspicion and concern from family members but not much really happened from that excuse me during this period, Thario and LaFrance were exclusive to one another, and the members were still in contact with their parents, but this wasn't always going to be the case with them, and it would soon change. 
But Theria was good at what he did. He was able to bring in significant numbers of new members into the Seventh-day Adventist church. But despite being good at what he was doing, the Adventist leaders were growing unsure of whether the people he was coaching and teaching were actually becoming part of that Seventh-day Adventist church or if they were instead following like Theria and his own beliefs and just under the disguise, I guess, of the church. But later that year, in July of 1977, Theriot attended a Seventh-day Adventist conference, which was held in Ontario, and he met Gabrielle Lavallee. Um, she, along with her friend, would move back to Thedford Mines with Therio, both moving into his apartment with the rest of the group. So at this time now, this raised the number of people living in his apartment to nine people. And people were then like, there was no space for them. So people were living on or sleeping on the floors and kind of wherever they could in this apartment. And then in October 1977, him and eight of his followers moved to a new building in St. Marie, which is located about an hour south of Quebec City. And what they did was this, they got a new building, they kind of split it into two sections. So one half acted as a home for them. And then the other half was a storefront called Clinique Vive en Santé, which means or which translates to healthy living clinic. Here, they continued their anti-smoking sessions in addition to selling Adventist literature and then the healthy foods um, that went along with their sessions. More followers then joined him in St. Marie, gaining a reputation as a healer at the same time. Two ill members were then taken into his group, one with multiple, multiple sclerosis and the other suffering from leukemia. And from what I could find, these two were the only ones that were ill, but they really believed that um, Therio could cure them essentially. And like his healing abilities were going to save them. But unfortunately, Geraldine Eau Claire, she was the member with leukemia. Um, she passed only a few days after she arrived to the healthy living clinic and a police investigation did occur, but no evidence was ever actually found to suggest that he was responsible for her death. So I'm unsure of kind of what happened in the background of that, if something kind of sketchy happened or not, there's no real sources saying. But anyways, in January of 1978, Thério married LaFrance, and not long after, he actually officiated two other marriages between his followers. With these new marriages, though, apparently the members had very little input on whether they actually wanted to get married to each other. He was just kind of like, yeah, you're getting married. I'm going to officiate this thing. Um, let's get it over with. And so he married two of them. Things kind of start to take a turn, though, by this point. Um, during the spring of 1978, he adamantly believed that an apocalypse was going to happen. He kept saying that he was having dreams about this apocalypse and that God was telling him what actions they needed to take to remain safe. And he dreamt or he was told that um, the Quebec wilderness would be spared by God when the apocalypse began. So that's where they had to go. They had to escape and flee to uh, the middle of nowhere in Quebec. So he demanded that his followers 
uh, cut off all ties with their parents and families, thinking that the apocalypse was going to happen. They had to cut off ties, which kind of seems counterintuitive. Like if you cared for your followers, you'd be like, hey, contact your family members before we all die. Um, But yeah, so contact was um, shut off between them. And soon members began to look negatively towards kind of anyone that wasn't a part of their group. So it very much became an us versus them mentality. And anyone that entered after April of 1978, so kind of this time frame when these apocalypse um, visions, dreams started, it actually became a requirement that they had to cut ties with their parents and family members to join and follow Therio, which is a little a little much, if I'm being honest. <laughs> um, sorry, go ahead. Um, that's just one of the main tactics that they use, so that you like you're forced to only be with them because you don't want to be spoiled by the outside ideas or whatever, right? Like basically, he's taking out any free will that could come in and change their opinions like if that makes sense very good for him but it's not good for for him else no yeah i agree so around this time too him and his followers were actually kicked out of the adventist church due to their odd behavior and kind of what was going on behind the scenes um so theriot was excommunicated after a vote held by the church leaders and within, like, Therio's group then, rules increasingly became more strict, eventually getting to a point where members weren't allowed to talk to other members unless he was present. So, again, very much, like, separating them and making him kind of their reliance source and they them having to rely on him for everything. Um, immediately after his excommunication, Therios group suffered a shortage of supplies, which greatly impacted their income since the literature and the health foods that they were selling in their healthy living clinic were actually provided by Adventist suppliers. Um, so they had no other means of supporting themselves by this point. Once they were separated from the church, though, radical changes began to be seen within the group. And the first kind of noticeable one to at least outsiders in the city were that the members started to wear tunics by June of 1978. Um, They no longer wore underwear and the women and men wore different tunics to kind of separate the two. And then Therio wore his own unique tunic, um, which was brown and had gold ornamentation. So then the, uh, the men's and women's, though, were different shades of green. So this kind of just made him stand out from them all. In 1978, he told his followers um, he had a date for the apocalypse, that the end of the world was going to happen on February 17th, 1979. He said it was going to end, quote, in a shower of boulder-like hailstones, end quote. And he believed that the only way to survive this was, like he said, to move out to the wilderness in Quebec. So him and the now 23 followers he had moved to the Gaspé Peninsula um, to a foot of a mountain in Paspébiac. They named the mountain Mont de l'Eternel, which translates to Eternal Mountain, and this would kind of turn into their future home. 
The group began building cabins on the undeveloped land in preparation for winter, and they, they titled and named themselves the Holy Moses Mountain Family, which is a bit of a tongue twister. But in like kind of a side note, not related, apparently they had some really good craftsmanship on the buildings that they made. Uh, one of like the child children's aid, um, like or child protective services people when they came in, they were like, the buildings were in good condition. Like it seemed okay. Um, so that's kind of cool. I kind of think that's impressive. That is kind of impressive. But anyways, but you kind of want it to be nice, at least, if you're going to live alone in the wilderness. You want to make sure your house is going to stand up. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, like, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have, like, running water and, like, all of that. But, like, the buildings themselves were just well-constructed, from what I've heard. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> yeah. Which I'm also surprised by, because, I like, I don't know any of the details that went into it, but, like, you're in the middle of nowhere. Like, what are you using to build these buildings? You know what I mean? Well, they're probably just cutting down trees. Yeah, which I think is even more impressive. Right? <laughs> I know. I couldn't imagine, like, taking a tree and just, like, turning it into a house. Yeah. House, furniture, like, everything. Everything. That's crazy. Yeah. Um... But yeah, anyways, um, after the first few months at this new location, a few members actually did leave the group. Uh, a couple of them mentioned that Therio had started to become violent to the members, and they got out of there as soon as they could. So this was kind of the the beginning of the end, I'd say. The members who did stay behind with him, they all got new Bible names in September of 1978. So what happened with this is that Therio wrote names from a Hebrew encyclopedia onto different pieces of paper, put them all in a hat, and then randomly drew out names and went, yep, that's your name, and assigned all of the members new names. It's For like the sorting them, hat, but like less good. Yeah. Less good. Less good. That's for sure. And surprisingly, some of them, like, it would be over a decade until they would use their birth names again. Like, that was just the names they went by. That's wild. Yeah. And so, as everyone kind of randomly got this new name, Therio took on the name Moses. And the sources kind of differ and whether like the members gave him that name or he named himself Moses. But basically it was just due to the idea that he had led them all to this promised land, just like Moses had done. So that's why he took on that name. Um, but a few different traditions too were borrowed from the old Testament. And one of them was uh, polygamy. So all of the marriages that Thario officiated were soon dissolved in October of 1978, um, except for his marriage with La France and between two other members who were married prior to coming into um, the cult or the commune. So by 1980, he had married all of the remaining women that could be married. So he had a total of eight wives and he justified this by quote, referring to the polygamous unions of the Israelite Kings, such as Abraham, David and Solomon end quote. Um, so the remaining women, they were all adults. 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. So he only married woman. He only married adult woman. I'll okay. clarify because there okay. were children, but um, there was nothing that I found that said he married children. Okay. Good to know. He unfortunately abused children, but no marriage and no um, any of that. And surprisingly, the events of Jonestown, um, which we cover in episode 27, we did Jonestown and Forensic Toxicology, if you want to listen to it. But the events of Jonestown in 1978 actually put their group in the spotlight of media for a bit, even though there really hadn't been any evidence at the time indicating violence within the Holy Moses Mountain family. Um, Comparisons through media were being made between Jim Jones and um, Therio, and they thought that they were going to kind of be a Canadian version of Jonestown or the, that cult. And on December 11th, 1978, Therio and one of his members were actually arrested after a Radio Canada interview and were, quote, forced to undergo psychiatric evaluations, end quote. And this was just to examine their mental state because they suspected something was up after this interview. I'm not entirely sure what the interview was about or what was said, Um, but they were released only two days after both mental illness free. um, According to the evaluations, even though Theriot's report was um, said that he had quote, mystical delusions end quote. So it doesn't really seem super clean in my opinion, but they, sent them on their way it seems really weird to me that they were like forced to undergo the psychiatric evaluation they're like oh actually no they're totally fine even though they're not yeah and that's the thing too because that's the first time out of three separate times that psychiatric evaluations are forced on him or members um and they came back as if nothing happened, which is That's so confusing crazy. to me. Cause I'm like, if you're going to force an, e- an eval, make sure you're going to find something not, not to like say to plant stuff, but like be confident that you're going to find something. And then if you do find something, don't just let them go after two days. Like exactly. mystical delusions feels rather significant. Mm-hmm. And there was something saying like, they talked about possible schizophrenia, but it wasn't enough to diagnose him or something like that. So they're like, yeah, like he's kind of within the within normal limits in the medical society that you hear all the time. So he was fine. But in uh, January of 1979, three children were born into this commune. One was fathered by Therio. Um, but two others were from two couples that had come into the commune. So there's Isaac. He was the son of Claude Oulette and Solange Boilard. Um, he was actually the last child born within the group that wasn't fathered by Therio. So there were many, many um, children born after this, but Therio was the father to all of them after. So... Keep that in mind. And so after, you know, we're what, January 1979 now, February comes and passes. So the date of his prophesied apocalypse has passed. 
He goes to explain this away um, by saying Earth's timeline didn't match up with God's timeline. So there would be a little bit of miscommunication in the dates and times that this apocalypse would happen. And so it was just a miscalculation. And he said that, quote, one second in the life of God could be 40 years of life on Earth. And inversely, one second on Earth could be 40 years in God's life. End quote. So, so but was he given like mm-hmm. an amount of time before the apocalypse and he came up with February 1979 or was it told to him that it was February 1979? He had, I think he just came up with that. Okay. Like, I think he saw it in a dream or that was the date that came to him. Right. Um, and then after that February 1979 date passed, he was like... Well, it could be off by however many 40 years or seconds. You never know. I guess we have to bunker down just in case um, (laughs) it ever does happen. Okay. Yeah. And that's the confusing thing, too, because it's like he doesn't specify, oh, just one second in the life of God could be 40 years on Earth. He also says it could be the other way around, which just implies he doesn't know at all and has just... Yeah, making excuses, which is what he's doing. But well, because I was like, I'm it like, makes sense if he's like, oh, like God told me it'll be two months from now, but like, yeah. and then be like, oh, well, two months could be forty thousand years or whatever, or actually two months, you know? Yeah. So I think because there was mention of like a miscalculation because of this forty years one second, so. I don't know if that then implies that it was this kind of like however however many months situation and he calculated it to be this February date. I feel like that's not something he would have done, um, but that is a possibility. Um, but anyways, yeah, he was lying out of his arse about the miscalculation afterwards and the members ate it up they were like yeah that makes total sense okay we believe you so that's great um but after this failed prophecy happened the media really grabbed a hold of this and then this kind of refueled reports and concerns that um he was their group was becoming something similar to Jonestown. So there were actually a lot of concerns that they may ultimately resort to a copycat mass suicide similar to Jonestown massacre. Thankfully, this never ended up happening. I don't think there was any other conversation or discussion on that matter. Um, But it is interesting that he was um, kind of compared to Jim Jones for a short little while and repetitively too. So one of the members, Chantelle Labrie, she was actually one of the one of the first four members that had joined back in Thetford Mines, who was supposed to go to school. So she um, didn't end up going back to school. So her parents had gotten a court order for a psychological examination um, previously when she didn't go back to school. It came up that she was healthy, but then they ordered a second round of examinations in March of 1979, even though the first came back healthy and like she's, 
I think they obviously they're concerned parents. So yeah, but this whole Jonestown thing must have fueled them. That's my assumption um, to get them to undergo another evaluation for her. But she ultimately missed her court order exam. And so the Sorete de Quebec, which is kind of like their provincial police force, they arrived at the commune to retrieve Labrie to take her psychological eval. Upon their arrival, though, Thario refused entry. So they all left and then came back about a month later on April 18th. They came back with more officers and a raid had been conducted. So they ended up taking Labrie and Thario um, both to a mental hospital for psychological evaluations. And Thario was actually also arrested for obstruction of justice. Um, So he was arrested for that, but also then brought to that same mental hospital to go undergo his own evaluations. While he was in this mental hospital, Helicopters came in and brought parents of members into the commune to visit them um, in an attempt to kind of convince their children to leave and go home. And by children, I mean like their adult children. They were all 20s, 30s, I believe. No one took their offers, though. So even though they all had family members coming in trying to get them to come home and be like, we have a home for you, no one took their offer, um, which is very shocking to me. But um, I guess you're kind of very brainwashed by that point. But Labrie and Therio were then released within kind of a three-day period of each other both with no mental health issues outlined in their evaluation again. So this was like the third mental evaluation that had occurred to someone or to people in this group. And they all came back as uh, like a blank slate. So that's great. And on top of that, he was only given a one year suspended sentence, which meant that he could return back to the mountain to be with, his followers for the obstruction of justice. So that's great. After a press conference in which he explained kind of the ideals of his commune, there was a wave of sympathy and soon there were hundreds of tourists actually visiting the commune during the summer of 79, as well as the summer of 80. And tourists were even coming in from the United States and Europe, apparently to come visit him and see what this commune was about. I feel like the last thing a cult needs, like in terms of being a cult and like trying to kill the cult is uh, tourists. Because if anything, that just like puts fuel to the fire. Oh, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I can't imagine being someone seeing like, oh, there's like this quaint little commune, but shit's kind of happening. Let's go visit it. I want to see what it's about. Like it kind of gives me midsummer vibes. Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. It's like, uh, maybe let's not give attention to the cult that is very potentially committing crimes right now and are potentially mentally ill and really need help. Right. I don't understand the appeal to it whatsoever. Um, so once these tourists came and went, apparently in the, in October of 1979, the member that had multiple sclerosis, she ended up falling into a coma and passing away. And while this would be kind of the last significant media event for a few years, it 
just the lack of press coverage doesn't necessarily indic- like mean that nothing was happening behind closed doors because it, it was during this time that shit really hit the fan and like things got really serious. Um, in 1980, there began a hierarchy between members and Theria wanted it to follow that of medieval times in a way. So he was the king. His primary wife at the time was queen. And then other members would then take on other traditional roles of a medieval court. So some of them were given like the role of slave and all that fun stuff. And on top of this medieval hierarchical system, the commune was also then divided into pure and impure members. And so this consisted of those favored by Theriot would be pure and those who were not were impure. And so even the children and newborns were separated into these two categories. So basically he was like, if I like you, you're pure. If not, sorry, you're impure and life's going to suck for you soon. Clearly, I'm not sure how cults work, but if the cult leader didn't like someone, I just assumed that they'd like kick them out of the cult, not just like separate them into segregated groups. Right. I would think that too, but I feel like cult leaders just enjoy the having that following regardless. Like, I feel like there would be some sense to try and become pure. You know what I mean? Like people who were impure wanted to do what they could and like, please him to try and become pure. I don't know if that's the case. That's just my speculation. Um, but I think that would go right to his head and he would really enjoy that aspect to it. Um, so with the pure and impure, uh, violence really started kind of within the commune at this time. And it became a regular part of the commune, commune's routine pretty much. And physical pun- punishments were the result of kind of any perceived misconduct and a lot of this violence was directed towards impure members, but over time, it didn't matter if you were pure or not, you just faced the same violent outcomes. And so one of his wives, um, Lavalet, she described Theria whipping her with a leather belt after she had dozed off during one of her sermon or one of his sermons, excuse me. And violence was often urged to be inflicted amongst members. So, for example, um, Jacques Giguer was reportedly forced to cut off his t- wife's toes. I don't know the circumstances around that and what prompted that, but toe cutting, I guess, was a very common thing in that cult, it seems. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure why they were forced to do it or if this was just him being like you do this you do this and inflicting pain and uh, violence among members um and then the final adult member to join was in november of 1980 so this individual was Guy Veer, he had recently left a mental hospital that he was being treated for, for de- or treated at for depression. He was welcomed into the commune, but he was given the role as slave. And 
he was tasked with having to look after the impure children who were mostly babies at the time. And another stipulation was that he wasn't allowed to eat with any of the other members, any of the adult members. So he kind of was just like full-time babysitter from my understanding. And while the next events that I'm going to kind of be discussing are disputed, the version later accepted by the court um, is that on March 23rd, 1981, Veer was looking after three of the children that lived with the commune. And here he ended up beating up two-year-old Samuel Giger, or Giger, sorry, for crying. I have a feeling I'm butchering all of these French names. I'm trying my best. Please leave me alone. <laughs> um, <laughs> this sounds good enough, so okay. you're doing better than I would. <laughs> okay, I'll fake it until I make it. Um, it's been a while since I've pronounced anything French. <laughs> but after assaulting Samuel. Samuel was then placed into the care of Lavallee, who she was actually a trained nurse nurse prior to joining this cult. So she kind of, um, un, I don't know. She didn't, I don't know if she wanted to, but being a nurse was very useful to Therio during his surgeries, because obviously he didn't have any actual medical background, but she, he could use her um, to help during these things. So two-year-old Samuel's condition unfortunately worsened. Eventually he des- developed swelling on his genitals and he could no longer pass urine. And so Therio decided he wanted to heal him. So he cut into his swelling to release um, a, hopefully some of the fluid and he used rubbing alcohol, a blade and anesthetic that was injected into Stam- Samuel's stomach. I don't know what the anesthetic was. I don't know why he was injecting it into his stomach. Um, but needless to say, the two-year-old passed away the following morning, um, unsurprisingly, and his body was soon cremated afterwards. But it wasn't until months after the death of Samuel that Therio bl- blamed Veer for the death of the child and decided that he should be punished for killing this boy. And this happened in November or sorry, September 1981. And so he determined he came to the conclusion that the punishment that Veer should face was castration, that he would remove both of Veer's testicles. So they held a trial within the commune, within the group, and they wanted to decide whether this punishment should be done or not. Originally, um, what I could find, it kind of varies a bit whether they decided yes or decided no. But it was deemed that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Um But it was also just people within the commune, so it doesn't really have much standing anyways. So Therio still decided to teach him a lesson and performed the surgery anyways. So I don't understand why the trial happened if he was just going to do it anyways. Um, But this surgery, he ultimately ended up removing both of uh, Veer's testicles with the help of Lavallee and members were told that if any outsiders were to ask what happened they would say that he was trampled by a horse and that is what caused um, the removal of both of his testicles the castration because being trampled by a horse would look identical to having them surgically removed there's no yeah. difference 
And not even like a good surgically removed, like a botched someone who thinks he's good at medicine surgically removed. Um, they, I can see that. It's the same, though. It's the same. <laughs> but after his surgery, um, Veer was told that his rank was improving from slave to eunuch. But this wasn't good enough for him, so he ran away from the commune, rightfully so. I feel like if that happened to me, I would be doing the same thing. Do you um, know what the word eunuch means? No. It's a term for a castrated male. Um, <laughs> I'm just going to Google. It has like a, sta- like a standing in medieval court, I thought. Yeah, because I've heard it in medieval court. A man I who's been castrated... Um, and in the past, they were employed to guard the women's living areas. So, like, from babysitter to woman sitter, in a way. Like, there was no change. <laughs> it just he lost his balls and had to watch well, women Well, it's kind now. of a punch in the face. That's You're terrible. Like, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Anyway, I, I just like wanted to share of- that with you in case you didn't know. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of, I honestly didn't even just take the time to Google it quickly, but that's actually kind of funny now that you yeah. <laughs> told that. <laughs> Um, but yeah, eventually he got his story out, um, to the police. He wasn't really saying much initially. And then after a little while, he did give in and tell the police what happened. So the police then raided the commune on December 9th, 1981, arresting Therio, Lavallee, Giger, and Ouellet for the death of their son, Samuel, and the castration of Veer. Another source I found, though, had said that seven commune members were convicted, so I'm not really sure of the total number, but... I have found multiple sources that said four, so I'm going to stick with those main four were who were arrested. Um, the four of them were then formally charged with those crimes, in addition to charges of child negligence, and they were found guilty in September of 1982, each receiving a prison sentence. But they all differed in length, and so Therio's sentence was the longest, being two years minus a day. The seven remaining children in the commune were then sent to Child Protective Services, and the remaining adult members who were still residing at Mont de la Tournelle were given an eviction notice, and um, a couple months later, in 1982, they were removed by forest rangers. So Lavallee, Giguer, and Oulette, the three others that were arrested, they were released in 1983, and they ended up moving closer to the apartments where the other members had moved to after being evicted, um, so they could kind of regroup themselves. And throughout Therio's two-year sentence, he still was able to keep regular phone calls with active members. And so they did end up like maintaining a close bond and close relationships with his followers. And somehow his sentence was reduced and he was released in February of 1984. And unsurprisingly, it didn't take him long to become reunited with his followers. And so he made plans to move back out to the wilderness um, the children of the commune, I don't quite understand this, but they were returned back to their respective mothers. Um, and it was with the condition that the CPS, like Child Protective Services, could do, like com- could 
What's the word? They could do regular drop-ins. So they could assess the condition of the children of their living conditions and they could just unannounced show up. Um, so that happened. But also most of the members were also on another, like on probation for at least another year. So Thario came up with the idea to avoid both of these issues, the CPS and probation, that they would just leave the province and find a plot in Ontario. So the group now, sorry, now numbering 22 members, they moved to a 200 acre plot of land near Burnt River in the Kawartha region of Ontario on May 2nd, 1984. So they purchased the land for about $12,000 and it's about a hundred kilometers northeast of Toronto. Of these 22, there were three men, nine women, eight were Therio's wives and 10 children at this time. So there was one woman who was, sorry, there was only one of the nine women that weren't his wife. Yep. And that That's I so weird. assume, yeah. And I assume that doesn't mean though that like he still wasn't sexually active slash sexually assaulting her. I just yeah. don't know why he didn't take it upon himself to end that marriage. My assumption, I guess, too, is he didn't perf- he didn't officiate that marriage. I think he officiated all of the other marriages that happened in their group, and he was just like, oh, never mind. Um, Were they legal marriages? Because I don't legally in Canada, I don't think you can be married to multiple people. I guess they just officiated it in terms of like their cult. Yeah, I yeah, yeah. I have a hard time thinking on paper legally they would be married, but they all addressed one another as like his wife and his wives. (laughs) That's so weird. Um, Yeah, I agree. So around this time, when they moved to Ontario, they then adopted the name Ant Hill Kids, which is what they became kind of famous for. And this was to describe how hardworking they are, similar to how ants, um, how hard ants will work in groups. So on their new plot of land, construction again began, building two houses in addition to other structures. And these included a sawmill and a sugar shack, which is kind of interesting. And this time, I don't think they were out, like, way out in the middle of nowhere. Like, they had neighbors around and stuff like that, but not, like, modern closeness neighbors you would see now, just, like, down the street. Like, there were people somewhat around them. The land wasn't suitable for farming that they had moved on to, so they weren't able to actually grow anything themselves and sustain themselves. And they were actually denied social assistance since they were seen as an institution rather than a family at the time, which makes sense in a way. And their neighbors would help out a bit here and there by bringing them food and supplies. But the anthill kids mainly resorted to shoplifting for a brief period of time while they were still trying to figure out how to get a source of income. Um, Police soon began to crack down on their shoplifting habits, and so they decided to make an effort to set up a bakery where they'd go door-to-door selling baked goods and fresh fruit, as well as selling them at farmer's markets in surrounding towns. And I'm pretty sure they had, like, their, like, a bakery front, storefront, too, just not a large one. 
In December 1985, one of the older children actually ran away from the commune and was found by police, which swiftly prompted the Ontario Children's Aid Society to take away the 14 children who were now on the commune from the 10 um, that were there previously, now at 14. Um, Over the following two years, nine more children were born by Therio's wives. And since the Children's Aid Society kept an eye on the commune after they took the 14 children away, they removed these nine as well. So in total, there were 25 kids because he also had his two from his first marriage on that, which is a lot of children. And I think his mentality with that is he just wanted to keep the cult going. Um, He was like, how can I instill this in more people? And children have very vulnerable minds. So that's one way of doing it. In... 1987, a court ruling made 21 of Therio's children wards of the crown, and testimony from some of the children described him forcing several other children to perform sexual acts on him. And they also described how, like, some babies would be held over cisterns, which are like big water tanks, to scare and manipulate the mothers into doing what he wanted them to do. And apparently, he would also clip the ends of members' toes off if they were to disobey him. Yeah. So there was a lot more that happened, too. I'm not going to go into the details of it because it is not great what he's done to children. But um, of the 25 children, pretty well all 25 were severely traumatized and um, assaulted in various ways, unfortunately. But around the time when Children's Aid Society removed the children... Um, from the commune, a baby had passed away in that time period too. And it was initially believed to be due to sudden infant death syndrome, but this was later believed to have happened after the baby was left outside in a wheelbarrow in the cold um, during a blizzard. So not sudden infant death syndrome. Um, Therio was just a terrible human being. Um... Even after all of this, the mothers were given the option to leave with their children, um, but the majority, if not all of them, decided to stay with Therio. And some of them did end up saying in interviews later that they were scared of him and thought that he'd come after them and their children um, if they did decide to leave. Violence then increased within the commune with physical punishments continuing, and this is when Therio... Um, started kind of performing more surgeries on his members that said that had healing properties and magical, or he called them magical healings. An example of this is that Lavalet, the nurse and one of his wives, had mentioned a toothache at one point. And so he took it upon himself to remove eight of her teeth um, to heal her slight toothache on one tooth. Well, you can't have a toothache if you don't have any teeth. Right? So he kind of got some back. No flaws. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So hopefully he got the tooth that was painful for her. Because if not, that's a little unfortunate. Um, 
But then this kind of kickstarted where shit really hits the fan. On September 28th, 1988, Therios spent the morning drinking and instigating fights with his followers, which I guess became kind of the regular with him. He proceeded to ask whether anyone needed medical treatment. And 32-year-old Solange Boilard, so one of his wives who was now his primary wife at the time. I guess he kind of rotated through. She had complained about stomach problems. I feel like I wouldn't be complaining about needing medical treatment after like knowing what he's done. Like I would just suffer through it. But I feel like if you're brainwashed at that point, you wouldn't know any better. Um, it's believed that she may have had appendicitis. It's not like confirmed what she had had, but... I don't think Therio knew this. He just was like, oh, she's got an upset stomach. I'm going to try and save her. I'm not going to go into the gruesome details because he did a lot of messed up stuff with her. Um, pretty horrific and gruesome things. But some of the things included an enema with molasses and olive oil. And he ended up ripping a piece of her intestine off with his bare hands. <laughs> So, yeah. If you want to look into more of what he did, he just did a lot to her, unfortunately. Um, Lavalet was ordered to stitch her up with a needle and thread, but unsurprisingly, Bullard passed away the next day. Um, I don't see how anyone could survive that. But for some... Um, I feel that they all die relatively soon after this horrific surgery because like having to heal with that and like get infected and then like there's no antibiotics or anything to like deal with infection would be pretty bad. Yeah, and I don't think any anesthetic was used um, either. Oh my goodness. So I think like she's straight up just passing away from like pain at that point like shock basically yeah yeah from shock um like obviously it's terrible that that happened but i'm glad she was at least put out of her misery relatively quickly yeah the next day same with um the two-year-old it was the next day um but yeah so like for some reason too after all that effed up stuff happened he then had the followers like bury her, but then redig her up, but then bury her again, and then redig her up a second time. Um, for some, like, I don't know. And then I'm pretty sure she ended up being cremated as well. But court documents do detail that he removed one of um, Bollard's ribs and he, he would wear it around his neck in a leather pouch. And then he would keep pieces of her skeleton that would and use them for, quote, a series of shamanic rituals intended to revive her. And when these proved ineffective, he created esoteric morning rituals, many of which involved masturbation and sex magic, end quote. Um, members of the commune were forced to participate in these rituals, having to wear her bones around their neck as amulets, almost. Um, and... Some of the stuff that they like they he did to her body after death is again very gruesome and it just like why? I'm not gonna go into details. I feel like it's been gory enough as gruesome as of that at bleh, English. Gruesome enough as it is. 
But due to previous abuse suffered at the hands of Therio, Lavalet, so the nurse, her fingers had kind of just become stiff and mangled in a way. On June, sorry, July 26, 1989, Therio had a whole bunch to drink that day and told her, you know what? I'm going to heal you. I'm going to heal your hands. But this healing included stabbing her hand with a hunting knife and impaling it into a wooden table. And in an interview, Lavalet said that, quote, I stood there for an hour. I didn't want to lose consciousness because if I did, I knew he was he would kill me. He was drunk, of course. My arm turned blue and dark. He decided to amputate it, end quote. So with no anesthetic, um, Therio then removes Lavalet's right arm between her shoulder and elbow. So not even at like a joint. He's just hacking off her arm. And she says, quote, he decided to use a cleaver. But on the first try, he didn't do the job because the blade was so dull, it didn't chop it. The second time, the job was done, end quote. Um, so she ended up spending the night on the kitchen floor in pain, as it makes sense, one would assume. And it wasn't until the following day that another follower stitched up her arm. And it wasn't until days later that Therio, quote, cauterized the wound with a piece of drive shaft from a truck heated with an acetylene torch or acetylene torch. I assume just one of those blow torch things. Um, she survived all of this. Um, she escaped and she fled. She hitchhiked to a hospital north of Toronto. Initially, though, she did not tell them what he had done to her. Um, they didn't, she didn't say that he was the culprit. She just said that her arm had been run over by a tractor. I don't know how you would get a stitched up arm if you were ran over, like run over by a tractor. But sources do vary. Some say, that she did end up telling the police and um, hospital staff eventually that Therio was the culprit of all this. But then others say that another one of his wives, La France, had told police what happened after she escaped. So there's a little bit of a discrepancy on that. But regardless, they were informed of what happened. And after the weeks, the few weeks following her amputation, many members did leave the commune for good. And some returned to Quebec. Some just kind of went off to do their own thing. And so Theriot was arrested on October 6th, 1989, after evading police for six weeks. He pleaded guilty four days later to multiple charges related to the attack on La Vallée and was given a 12 year sentence, which was later being reduced to, which was later, sorry, reduced to 10 years on appeal. These charges included three counts of aggravated assault and one count of unlawfully causing bodily harm to Lavalet. It wasn't, though, until Theria was in jail that members who had left had started um, to tell police about what happened behind closed doors and of Boilard's 1988 murder. So in 1989, he was charged with the second degree murder of Boilard, pleading guilty to the murder and aggravated assault charges. I don't know why he didn't get first degree because I feel like you kind of have an intention to murder someone if you're ripping intestines out with your bare hands. But anyways, second degree murder charge. But he was sentenced to life. And um, thankfully, 
He was sentenced in 1993, and he ended up serving his time in various New Brunswick prisons. I don't know if this was because they just wanted to get him out of Ontario and Quebec, where they had lived for a little bit. But while many of his followers left, there were three of his wives that remained, and they still wanted to be his wife and close to him. So they decided to all live together by the jail that he was at, and they opened a bakery to support themselves. All three of them gave birth to babies conceived during conjugal visits with Therio. Um, and so they had four babies in total while he was in jail. Thankfully, all four were removed by, chi- by child protective services and put up for adoption. So removed from the household. But like, I'm, I don't know if it was just kind of a back in the day thing that conjugal visits were like contact visits were allowed, but I feel like that's not allowed nowadays. I also have never went to see anyone in prison, so I don't know the system. I feel like getting a conjugal visit is more difficult than they made it seem. I feel like you have to, like, apply. Or... But I, yeah. I don't know. I, I'm still I surprised no they'd even give conjugal visits to this man who was clearly running a cult, given he had ten supposed wives and was abusing every one of them. Like, I'm shocked they would let them do that. Mm -hmm. No, me too. Um, There's always question marks in these cases, which is annoying. But anyways, yeah, four kids, another four kids. Um, So I think that was 29 in total then. I don't know. Sources always vary between 25 and 29. So I don't know if the 25 was after these four or after 29 was after, but regardless, another four babies added to the mix. Um, in 1993, Lavallee, the wife who had her arm amputated, she wrote and published about a book about her life with Therio and as part of the Ant Hill Kids. And in 2002, a movie with the same title as her book called Savage, Savage Messiah um, was released. The book was in French, though, as French is their first language. And around the time the film was released, Therio was actually denied his first attempt at parole for day trips um, within 2000 or in 2002, excuse me. And 2009 struck a bit of controversy because some of his artwork, poetry, and other art pieces were for sale online on a U.S.-based website that specialized in selling murder memorabilia. Um, it was known as murderauction.com. Thankfully, the Correctional Services of Canada prevented any of his work from leaving the prison. I'm not positive if this means that none of the sales went through and like he didn't make any money and they didn't send off any of his stuff. Or if it just like, if someone happened to buy something, maybe he got the money from it, but they just didn't send off the art. I'm not positive, but regardless, none of his works ever left the prison. Thankfully, um, kind of closing it all in, in 2011 now, so a couple years after his artwork fiasco, he was at Dorchester Penitentiary in New Brunswick. He was shanked and stabbed to death by a cellmate on February 26. His cellmate was already serving a life sentence, but he pleaded guilty to second-degree murder and was sentenced to serve yet another life sentence. 
And before ending, I just want to add that going into this, I kind of always associated the Ant Hill kids as that cult that broke their kneecaps to like as an initiation process. Like I, I don't know where I heard it or how I found out about it. I just always thought that the Ant Hill kids were the ones that broke their own legs. And a few sources did mention it. But I'm not 100% sure because the source I found some of the information about breaking their own legs was on cultnation.com. I'm not positive how reliable that sourcing is, but it's written there that members were made to, quote, break their own legs with sledgehammers to shoot each other in the shoulders, eating their own and others' feces, insects, and rats. He, as in Therio, would nail children to a tree and force other children to throw rocks at them. He would forcefully remove teeth and nails. He would burn his followers by making them sit on lit stoves. He would cut off arms and legs without warning. He made them sit naked in the cold and whip and beat them. End quote. And I never got around to reading Lavalle's book, so I have nothing to compare that with. Um, some of it there is some merit to because um, arms were amputated and uh, teeth were removed. Aside from that, I'm not positive about. Um, but yeah, again, I just want to mention too, like I said at the very beginning, it's important to keep in mind that there are a few reliable sources to detail what went on behind closed doors. It's evident that these members did face really horrific and gruesome tortures while part of this group. Um, but the exact details of everything vary here and there between um, Quebec media sources and other online sources. So I did just want to throw that out there again. But I know I rambled on for a lot. There was a lot of like background history to this guy. Um, but that is Roche Therio and the Ant Hellkins. Um, did you ever find out why they were called the Ant Hill Kids? Yeah. Sorry, I don't know if my Wi-Fi cut out. They were called Ant Hill Kids because of how hardworking they were. And they associated them with how hardworking ants uh, work in their hills. Oh, okay. Yeah, I must have missed that. So nothing, like, special. Like, it was just straight up hard working. We were like ants. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Good to know. All right. Well, Nicole, thank you very much for telling us about that um, very horrific cult, but more so the very horrific crimes of Therio, because it seems like everyone else in the cult were simply victims and they were too scared to leave. Um, I did enjoy learning about it, but I will say it was one of the worst cults I have ever learned about. And again, I'd only ever heard of them when you mentioned them briefly a couple weeks ago. So thank you for educating me on them. And now that I know that Canada also has a really dark history with cults. <laughs> All right. So now journey, now that we know all about the Anhill kids, but more specifically Roche Therio and his very horrific crimes, uh, would you care to educate us on the cult typologies and sort of how all of this relates and why this and the other cults we've spoken about in the past are considered cults as opposed to like other types of crime? Yes, um, I would love to. Um, I'm going to apologize. I have a bit of a cold, so my voice is really like scratchy. Um, but yeah, I'll try to do my best to keep it as clear as possible. Uh, so 
I'm going to try and tell you guys about the different types of cults, but there really isn't a lot known about them. So it was mostly just me picking from like a bunch of different sources to try and assemble something that made sense for our listeners. Um, and so I also just wanted to share that like we're not here to place judgment on the people who have joined cults or have left cults or anything like that. We're just here to share information. Um yeah, with that said, I will get started. So what is a cult? Uh, like I already said, there really isn't much known about cults, but the Oxford English Dictionary defines them as a small group of people who have similar religious beliefs or routines that others view as bizarre or sinister. And I think that's a fairly simple and accurate description. Um, the term cult comes from the Latin word meaning worship, and its definition changes depending on the context, and it used to refer to pretty much all forms of religion. Um, I remember learning in my religion course in first year that the word cult was basically just a all-encompassing word that means religion. And then after groups like the Manson family, Jonestown and Heaven's Gate, and like Roche Therio, the term had begun to get a more of a negative connotation. So now when you refer to major religi religious groups as cults, they get a little offended. Um, even though cults might not necessarily be a bad thing in the old sense of the word. Um, okay. So there are about eight common characteristics of cults, and I'll go through each one. This list isn't conclusive because, like, hardly any sources agreed explicitly on what the characteristics were. So I kind of took the most common ones that were seen throughout the sources. And so the first is there needs to be a central authoritarian leadership in one person or a small group of individuals. And they use, like, techniques of persuasion to convince their members to join or stay. They're often very smart and very charismatic. Um, and then the second is ideological purity, where members are discouraged from questioning the cult's doctrine. And then if you do, punishment and shame are kind of cast upon you um, for doubting the cult. Um, the leaders of the cult have extreme control over their members' lives. Group members also kind of police each other in a sense. So it's just a big group of tattletales. And often they dictate what people can or cannot eat, wear, and who they can have relationships with. And we kind of saw that with the Ant Hill Kids where Therio decided that these people were no longer married, that marriage was null and void, and you are now married to this person, whether you wanted to or not. Um, and they also perform mind-altering practices, such as sleep deprivation, chanting, meditation, and using drugs. And so these are used to break down their defenses and make them more susceptible to cult ideology. Um, the next is isolation and love bombing. We saw this a lot with the Ant Hill kids. Um, and when someone joins a cult, they're often forced to cut contact with their family and friends outside of the cult. And so then, in terms of love bombing, new initiates are showered with praise when they first join, so they feel a sense of belonging and appreciation so that they will stay. So, like, if you're a newer initiate, you would be called pure so that you would, like, feel accepted and want to stay. 
Um, and then there's the us versus them mentality. So cult members are encouraged to see the cult as superior to life anywhere else and to kind of perpetuate the idea that those outside the cult lack understanding. And a lot of cult members really embrace this idea. And we saw that even with this cult where family members were coming in and being like, hey, you need to leave. This isn't safe. And they were like, no, this is where I want to be. So that really took hold. And then, well, and this is another form of isolation as well. And then once you join a cult, any identity that you had outside of the cult is no longer accepted. And you are expected to accept the cult identity. Like being in the cult is your new identity and your new person. Um, and then we have apocalyptic thinking. So many cults adopt the idea that they are supposed to prepare for an apocalypse or cataclysmic event. Um, this doesn't apply to every cult, um, but it did apply to this one, even though the second coming of Jesus wasn't necessarily an apocalypse. Um, but the, I guess the hailstorm of like boulders would be an apocalypse. Um, and then we have followers are expected to dedicate the majority of their time and energy to the cult. And often they are expected to give substantial amounts of money as well. And so this is under the pretense that the cult will provide for you. So by giving to the cult, it will give back. Um, and I found it very interesting that with this one, um, a lot of the Adventist church members were providing what the cult needed so that the other members didn't really have to. Um, and so those are pretty much what a cult needs to be considered a cult. Um, and so then the next question I have is like, how do cults start? Uh, so they're often started by that charismatic individual who is skilled at getting people to listen to them. They often have like unusual ideas about reality or they'll even invent an ideology to promote and gain followers for that unusual idea about reality. Uh, and often these individuals target extroverted people who are successful but feel dissatisfied in their life and that there is something missing. So when the targeted individuals are presented with something that quote unquote fits what they are missing, it's not difficult to convince them to join the cult because they're already looking for that something. And the cult will continue to grow and expand. However, the number of like firm, hardcore believers will remain fairly small. There will always be that like tight knit core group of believers. And so now I'm going to kind of go into the categories of cults. Um, this was really frustrating to research because again, no two sources had the same categories. So I kind of like took them. I took three or four main ones, and then I separated all the other ones that I found into kind of like subcategories to kind of make it easier to digest. And I was really hoping I'd find a rubric, but I could not, so that was kind of disappointing. Um, the first cult type will be religious cults. So these cults claim to be religious movements and offer a religious doctrine, um, either new or already established. And so some examples include like Scientology, Heaven's Gate, and Love Has Won, which we were going to do an episode on, but we decided not to. Um, and so some subcategories of religious cults would include um, 
Eastern mystical or like an Eastern religious cult. So these cults are related to Hinduism, Buddhism, and other pantheistic Eastern religions. So they are characterized by the belief in spiritual enlightenment and reincarnation, attaining the Godhead and Nirvana. So they practice extensive meditation, mantras, altered states of consciousness, celibacy, fasting, special dress, and altars. Um, so like Hare Krishna's was a part of it, self-realization fellowship. And I feel like some aspects of Rajneesh's cult would also apply to this category, except instead of practicing celibacy, they practice just having a lot of sex. And then in, we have established cults, which are Bible-based cultic religious movements, which have achieved mainstream status, such as Mormonism, Jehovah's Witness, and Christian science, which is actually different than Christianity. Um, and it was invented by a woman, so cool. Um, but we also have New Age cults. And so these ones follow the belief that you are God, where the leader presents himself as a mystical, ultra-spiritual being. And so apparently these groups are more likely to have female leaders, which I didn't know. And practices include magic tricks, altered states of consciousness, peer pressure, channeling, UFO sightings. I don't know how that's a practice, but I think it's just a common theme seen in their religion. And chakra adjustments, faith healing, and or claiming to speak with or through ascended masters, spiritual entities, etc. Um, and then we have the occult or satanic or black magic cults. These ones scare the crap out of me because I feel like voodooism kind of applies to it and that's terrifying. So these ones believe in supernatural powers and sometimes the worship of Satan. And the leader often claims to be evil incarnate and practices can include animal sacrifice, physical and sexual abuse, secrecy, fear and intimidation, acts of violence, tattooing or scarring, blood rituals, altars, and other exotic or bizarre rituals. So those ones scare me a lot. That's terrifying. So, <laughs> yes. Right. <laughs> the idea of, like, worshipping Satan is just... I actually had this conversation with a coworker. We were talking about like voodoo and that American horror story season where um, it's all like voodoo cult stuff. And then there's an African tribe, I think. I don't know. It's like some form of voodoo where have you ever seen those like straw beings that like move, but there's no one in it. And it's like takes possession. Mm -hmm. Like that's terrifying. I don't know what goes into that, but that's right. <laughs> well, I kind of didn't believe it until I was talking to some friends in Halifax who were from Haiti. And he was like, yeah, voodoo has actually destroyed my family. Like, it's so scary. Yeah. And I was like, oh, OK, I'm going to pretend I didn't hear that because that's absolutely terrifying. Right? OK, so that was religious cult and all of its subcategories according to me. And next we have political cults. And so these cults are often formed around a certain political belief or stance and can be very dangerous. Um, these cults can also include religious and apocalyptic elements. However, that's not their main concern. And there is some overlap between religious and political cults because they're often concerned with an impending apocalypse, war, or huge societal change. Um, some examples of political cults include The Family, which is Charles Manson, QAnon, and Jonestown. 
And then as a subcategory, we have extremist political social movements. So groups cultic in the psychological or social sense. So like the Aryan nation, the white Aryan resistance and the Ku Klux Klan would be considered an extremist political cult. Um, and then I put one-on-one or family cults in this category because they're based in the belief that your partner, teacher, or parent are like above all else. Like that's who you're worshiping kind of. And so often an intimate relationship is used to manipulate the partner, children, or students. And there's generally severe and prolonged psychological, physical, and sexual abuse. And so some practices include the pleasure pain syndrome, promoting self-blame, induced dependency, induced fear and insecurity, enforced isolation, violent acts, incest and or deprivation. And so to me, this kind of felt like the type of cult that the anthill kids fit into. Um, and I wouldn't have placed it under this category if Charles Manson wasn't considered a political cult because he was also like a family cult because his name of the cult was literally the family. Um, <clears throat> so if you disagree that that's where that should be placed, then just let me know. And then the third is self-improvement cults. And so these offer their members a way to change their lives for the better and become your best self. And so they sound great, but they can also be very damaging. And so some examples would be the NXIVM cult and the Landmark Forum. Um, I haven't heard of either of those, actually, so that was kind of interesting. There's an interesting movie about the Nixium cult, actually. And for right now, I can't remember the name of it, but it's because, like, the... Like NXIVM, but I have just always known it known of it as Nixium. Um, I I don't know how to pronounce it, so that could be. I it. believe the leader was actually only arrested like five years ago. Like this was a really recent cult. Um, but there is a really yeah. interesting documentary about it. I believe on Amazon Prime. Uh, I'll try to find it and put it in in the sources if I do find it, but it's very sad. And there was actually like a fair amount of celebrities involved in this that like didn't see the harm in it and were advertising it to their followers. Well, I don't remember much about what it was, but when I Googled the cult, the leader looked familiar, like I'd seen his photo before. So I don't know if we'd studied him or not, but yeah, very weird. Um, So the next is multi-marketing cults or commercial cults. And so the leader asserts that they have found, quote unquote, the way and members are encouraged to participate in costly and lengthy seminars and are asked to sell the group's, quote unquote, project or product, sorry, to others. So this made me think of the Boom Boom cult from Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I don't know if either of you guys watch it, but that's what I thought of the entire time. Um... Yeah, so that's the best example that I could think of for that one. And then we have cults of personality. And so these ones are similar to multi-marketing cults, but are centered around the charismatic personality, interests, and proclivities of their leader. And so these groups revolve around a particular theme or interest. So for example, they would focus on like martial arts, opera, dance, theater, a certain form of art or a type of medicine or healing. And then practices include intense training sessions, rituals, blatant egocentrism or elitist attitudes and behaviors. So I don't really know of an example of a cult of personality off the top of my head, but it didn't sound anything like a typical cult. 
And one category of cult that I thought more sources would have is a doomsday or apocalyptic cult, but the only source that I could find that considered it its own category is Wikipedia. Um, so, but I still think it's a fairly important category of cult. Um, so basically a doomsday cult is just a group of people who believe that there's going to be an apocalyptic end or are choosing to bring about some kind of tragedy in society. And so these groups acquire resources to prepare for the end, which can include money, food, weapons, or medicine. And an example would be um, Shinrinkyo, who we talked about, I think it was like two episodes ago. Um, okay. So one of my sources actually talked about the evolutionary need for cults, which the anthropologist in me was fascinated about. So they talk about how cults can provide a basic need for individuals and they can play on the need of people to imitate social behavior and or follow orders. So I think that's why the hierarchy and deeming people pure versus impure within the anthill kids cult was so important because it provided that societal structure that is so important to people. I think too, sorry um, to interrupt, like it was interesting that not only did he separate between pure and impure, he also had that additional hierarchical system of like king, queen, and then the other medieval times, whatever. Like he had multiple sets of class separating systems. Yeah, it gives you something to, like, work for and strive yeah. to achieve so that you can, like... Yeah, very interesting. Um, it's also an evolutionary drive to belong to something, which is, like, another reason that people will join or remain in cults. So, and it's also, like, why cults are so powerful. And so then from an anthropological and evolutionary perspective, groups provide protection and they're an aid to access survival resources. So through the sharing of resources, it creates a bond between the individuals, with then, which then increases their willingness to share within the group. And then by sharing these resources, you increase your lifespan. So by like moving to the wilderness, you would need to share what resources you have so that other people in your group will survive so that when you need something, they will give you something so that you can survive. Um, I'm not going to talk too much more about it, even though it's so fascinating. But if you're interested in learning more about it, you can read my source on it. It'll be in the source list. And they talk a lot about the psychology of cults. And it's a it's an honors thesis. I don't know if it's for undergrad or anything, but they kind of talk about how cults are necessary for society, which I found a really interesting argument. Um, but yeah, that's kind of all I know about cults as there was very little research about them as a whole. Like there's lots of research on individual cults, but categorizing them, there was really nothing. Um, but there's a quote from the paper that goes, the lack of knowledge and exploration of cults is what makes it a phenomenon, end quote. And I find that very interesting because there's so much unknown and we're all like, us as scholars and scientists, Aldima scientists, we're like, we're intrigued by the unknown. So we want to go and learn about it and figure it out so that we understand what's going on. And so I kind of feel like that's how we're approaching the cults because it's so, there's so much not known and it's so fascinating that we're just like, let's go learn everything. But they're so exclusive and it's really hard to explore and learn more, but I really hope that we can. 
And that's all I have. So I hope you enjoyed. Well, thank you, Journey. Um, I did really enjoy. I love learning about the science of like specific crimes or specific criminal groups, I guess you could say. Um, I think it's really interesting that there's such a lack of research on cults as a whole like i know there's a lot of cults so there's a lot of like specific areas you can delve in but it's really interesting that just like um typologies of stalkers like we talked about a few episodes back how like no one has really agreed on one set of like typologies and everyone's kind of competing to make theirs the most known typology so that's really interesting and i really hope that at least eventually throughout research, um, scientists will agree on one set type because I think it'll make it a lot easier to identify like who's committing these crimes and like which ones are more harmful. Not that like all of all of them are harmful to some extent, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um yeah, but it's just really interesting. So thank you, Nicole, for telling us all about the Ant Hill Kids, which is a very frightening cult um, that, again, I didn't know about. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners didn't know about it either, especially given it was a Canadian cult and people think of Canadians as the nice guys. <laughs> um, and also, Journey, thank you for educating us on the types of cults and taking it upon yourself to kind of categorize them to the best of your ability and explain and give us examples on them. Uh, that was really interesting. Um, so our next topic that we will be speaking about in the next episode is Samuel Little. And we are also going to be talking about victimology and MOs, so modus operandi and signatures of criminals, uh, which I am very excited for. Um, I think victimology is a super cool science, and I don't think many people really know that victimology is a science in and of itself. Uh, so yeah, I think that'll be a good one. Uh, for a joke. I almost don't feel like it's appropriate to say one right now, but I will anyways. Uh, I looked really hard for a joke on cults, but most of them seemed like they were going to be very offensive because they kind of compared known established religions with cults and that just felt wrong. Uh, but I did find one that kind of made me giggle, so I'm still going to say it. And it's not really cult related. Um, so what do you call uh, a short person or, as this joke says, a vertically challenged individual? But I would also consider myself that because I'm five foot two. Um, what do you call a short person that can commune with the dead and they just broke out of prison? <laughs> um, oh no that's not no, what i thought the last no. half of the joke was gonna say <laughs> i have no idea they are a small medium at large oh <laughs> oh my god that's funny that one really made me giggle <laughs> that's a good one i like it <laughs> thank you um okay so for social medias uh and where you can find us online nicole would you care to tell our lovely listeners where they can find us 
I would love to. So you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at What the Forensics. We are most active on Instagram and Facebook. We have a Twitter, which is at WTForensicsPC. And then our website is whattheforensics.ca, and our email is whattheforensics at gmail.com. Amazing. Thank you, Nicole. Um, so just before we go, uh, we would love it if you guys gave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, or any of the other ones that you have found us on. Uh, we would love to read them. And it also just really helps with our um performance i guess and like helping it kind of reach more of an audience we would really really appreciate if you guys took out the time if you enjoy our podcast uh and with that being said this has been another episode of what the forensics we really hope you enjoyed it uh i know that i did and we hope that we will see you next time bye just a reminder to everyone that we are not professionals in the forensic science field we are just interested in forensics and want to share what we are learning with our listeners we're trying to give you the most accurate information but we are human and can make mistakes thank you so much for listening and we hope to see you next week Mm